Our Father, as always, we are humbled that you saw fit to continue your revelation into a universe inhabited by fallen creatures. That we have sinned against you corporately and individually, and yet you continue to pour out your grace toward us. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts to the scriptures again tonight, that you might fortify us and build our strength spiritually to stand against the wiles of the wicked one and also to have discernment against his deceptions in the world around us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to take up the final issue before going to the call of Abraham, which is why God had to call Abraham in the first place. When we get into the call of Abraham, which is the, uh, the subject of the notes that we handed out tonight, we are going to uh, cover a number of difficult doctrines, but the most difficult is the simple exclusivism that is so strikes the non-Christian as so terribly offensive. And to see a little bit more, uh, some background for that, we want to understand, here's, here's the problem. We have the flood at a point in time. We have the resurgence of civilization at this point. We have a flourishing of civilizations for 500 years. That's about the time between the time of Noah's and the flood and the time of the call of Abraham. About five centuries or a little bit more. And in that period, you have a strange thing going on where the human race is cohabited. There, there are two different kinds of human beings in here. You have the, the, grand, the grand old people who lived for four or five hundred years, and then you have the younger ones who are dying off earlier. And we said that this is a very abnormal period of history. It has never, ever happened in the human race, and it's inconceivable to people outside of the Bible. Uh, for scholars who don't take the Bible seriously, this is just pure fantasy. This is just pure myth, pure absolute nonsense. But from the scriptural point of view, that's what the Bible's reporting happened. So we have to go along with that whether people like it or not. Now, there are two other times in history when something like this happens, and both are really abnormal times. Prior to the flood, so if we diagram the time from the time of creation to the time of the flood, fall being right in there, during that period of time, angels cohabited with the human race. And that's Genesis 6. It's also the Garden of Eden. Anybody, any member of the, of the human race that period could have gone up to the gates of Eden and seen the angelic guards there with swords. So the police function during this period of time uh, was done by angels, and that's all the Bible tells us about it. We can sit here and speculate endlessly about what it must have been like. We don't know what it's like, because the only biblical data we have is one verse in Genesis 6, and the other one about the angels guarding the gates of Eden. Presumably, during this time, the, something happened in this angelic police function. It broke down somehow. And this is why in Genesis, just before the flood, you have that strange passage about angels um, taking human females into marriage relationships, that sort of thing. Really weird stuff. So, 
there was that period in history when something weird happened by way of the strange nature of who inhabited planet Earth. So that was number one period. This is number two. And then in the future, we'll have yet another time because when Jesus Christ comes back to establish a thousand-year reign from the time of his return until the time that he does away with the universe and we go into the eternal state in Revelation chapter 22, during that thousand-year period, the human race also undergoes a strange state of circumstances. And during that period, you have the resurrected saints cohabiting with natural believers and unbelievers. And this is the passage where Jesus, for example, promises that you will reign, you will reign with me while I subdue the nations with a rod of iron. And there, Jesus Christ is the authority over the entire globe for a thousand years. And the men show their gratitude to his work by rebelling in a massive global rebelling at the end, so man still doesn't learn the lesson. So, for three periods of history, there's this abnormality. We're studying period number two, this period of 500 years between the flood and Abraham. And during that period, there was a transformation that happened. The period started out at the beginning with a revelation available to everyone. So we have a feature at that point. We have universal revelation or what I will refer to as the Noahic Bible, which equals Genesis 1 to 9. That Noahic Bible was available to every race, every culture, every continent. That was the corpus of revelation that existed at the beginning of that 500-year period, that five-century period. What do you suppose that gospel consisted of. I mean, this was the gospel. This is all, all the Bible they had. No New Testament. Didn't know about Jesus. But it was sufficient in order to be saved. It was the gospel as it was known at that point in the progress of Revelation. Let's think about some of the terms that people had to believe in. Um, one of the things that they had to believe in was obviously creation, that God was the creator, that they hadn't come forth from, from the mud, so they had the idea that there was a personal, infinite creator. They must have known about the fall. That's in Genesis 3. So they knew about sin. They had some idea about sin. They knew about the fact that the Noahic covenant was installed by a blood sacrifice. They knew the story from Eden when God slayed the first animal and gave his skins to man. Uh, they had the promise of the Savior given to the woman, the seed of the woman who was yet to come, that seed. So they had an, a promissory thing going on. But if you'll open the New Testament, one of the most um, interesting uh, passages, uh, Warren Miller covered this in one of his Bible classes when he was teaching Jude. And this shows you they knew a lot more than we give them credit for. In Jude, the book just before Revelation, someone asked you to memorize the book of the Bible. That's an easy one. Only 25 verses long. Memorize it and say, yeah, I memorized the book of the Bible. Jude. And in Jude, verse 14, there's a strange verse here. Really strange. Got some stuff in it. We don't know where it came from. Nobody knows where this came from. But it's reporting about Enoch. 
who was a, one of the guys that lived before the flood, before the flood, not in the 500 period we're talking about tonight, but before that 500 period, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied saying. So now from the quote mark in verse 14 all the way down to the end of the quote at the end of verse 15 gives you the content of how much the people in Noah's day knew. He said, Behold, the Lord came, came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all upon godly ways and so forth. And it's, it's a look, look ahead to the judgment. So it's an idea there of quite a lot of detail not reported in Genesis 1 to 9. So when we say the Noahic Bible equals Genesis 9, we have to be a little leery about this equal sign. It might have included a lot more than equals. Maybe I should write it greater or equal than Genesis 9, but I hesitate to do that because they really didn't have much beyond Genesis 10 and 11. So there was a corpus there, sufficient for people to be saved. So the world was not without information, was not without data. So we want to see that at the beginning of that 500-year period, revelation was available. Toward the end of that 500-year period, the world was in a mess, a real mess. And that's why God had to call out Abraham to start all over the process now. So the question we want to work with tonight, because it will give us insight into our own system around us, or the civilization, as we call it, the cosmos, the world, as the Bible says. The world system came into existence by the end of this 500-year period. By the time of Abram, what had promised to be a glorious civilization, new, it had started out with all believers, it started out with a complete destruction of all the evil, except in the hearts of fallen men, and men were given an opportunity to start from a clean slate. And after five centuries, only five centuries, we have a deterioration. And it's a commentary on what happens to man corporately. This is us. We're in this. This is what human race produces. So we want to look at the process of going from a high civilization, which we've said before. We've looked at maps. We've shown you the exploration that these people did. They weren't stupid. They were well-trained. They had high technology. And out of this, you come to this great, from this great promise down to what we will call the world system. And the Bible refers to that world system either as the world or in the Greek it's the word cosmos. And that's that world, the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and so forth. And we want to use the structure. So if you'll, since we're in Jude, if you'll turn over to 1 John. Which is right nearby. First John chapter two. We're going to follow the notes, and we're going to go through and of what men produce. This is all preparatory to the call of Abraham and the rest of the Old Testament. First John chapter two, verse fifteen and sixteen. Key verse says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. No one loves the world, the love of the Father. 
So it's possible then to love the world. And what he's saying is you can't love the world and be in fellowship with the Lord. So why? I mean, who started this? God started it. No. There's a civilization. Now, what has come up means that if I love the world, I love the Father. And now, I'm, now we've got a dichotomy going on here. And that's what we want to struggle with and find out why, what, what self-destructive process occurred in civilization. If we can understand that self-destructive process, we can understand our own time. Because the self-destructive process goes over and over cyclically. We have rise and fall of nations. And we see this again and again and again. It will happen in every continent. It's happened dozens of times in Europe. It's happened dozens of times in Africa. Dozens of times in Asia. Every continent, same old thing, over and over. But what John does is isolate, in verse 16, three categories to watch for. And we want to amplify each of these three categories tonight because we're going to follow Paul's analysis based on this. There's three things here, he says, that constitute this cosmos. Now, you'll notice he's not saying it's the high technology. He's not saying that it's going out and building buildings. He's not saying it's anything to do with art or architecture to do with the technology, the medical work that done, the exploration work done. He doesn't list those. Because those are products of man's uh, genius. Man's, man was created to subdue the earth. Nothing wrong with those things. What John singles out as the cosmos, as the world, the pieces. It isn't a building here or a boat there or a vineyard over in this guy's land, or a house. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a configuration, an agenda, a way of these systems, all these components being organized toward different goals. I mean, we've just seen what, how Internet can be used. There's nothing evil about Internet. Internet is just another form of communication. And frankly, for some small Christian schools, it's a blessing because it means you can get library access you never could 20, 30 years ago. You've got a tool here from which we can actually have a lot of resources to homeschoolers. So, Internet has a great things. So, the Internet itself isn't part of the world system. It's the use of the Internet that can be for good or for evil. And you can't throw out the technology. Now, during church history, people do this. We've had people get so upset about the evils that go on that they freeze their own culture. I mean, the Amish is a good example. They have frozen culture at 19th century levels. Well, 19th century evil too. I mean, you can do things in a age you can do in a car that are good and evil. So the point is that it's, it's not the culture forms that go on. It's the use of them and the agenda involved. So the three things he wants to isolate for us the first is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is of the Father, but it's of the world. The world produces these, and we're going to look at them uh, kind of in a different order. We'll say the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, remember, the first place we see this is back in the garden. So let's turn uh, back to Genesis chapter 3. And you can take John's three categories. 
You go back to the text. In verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, three elements the Holy Spirit has described in Eve's mind. Here is the grand moment of the fall in verse 6. And isn't it striking that to look closely at Genesis 3.6 and notice where the commas are and notice where the phrases are, there are three phrases that describe what was going on in Eve. It says, saw that the tree was beautiful for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. You see the correspondence? Lust of the flesh, the lust of and the pride of life. All was involved in the sinful impulse. What we want to do, however, tonight, we want to learn something about paganism and we want to learn about this thing that's pressing us as Christians. We want to learn about the enemy tonight. And as we said, sometimes, you know, uh, we met the enemy and it's us. And so we want to examine that because our whole sanctification and evangelism and missions ultimately are all intrusive in this world system around us. So let's go to Romans chapter 1 because this is analysis of child culture. Remember, as a Jew, as an evangelist, and as a missionary, he goes out and he does an analysis right at Rome, of all places, the head, the fountainhead of culture of his time. And if you would also follow in your notes on page 19, we could go into this in a lot of great detail. Keep in mind, we're only skimming the surface here. But we want to get the master some of the big ideas. My desire for you is that when you've gone through the notes and gone through the, the, the scriptures that we've gone through and you've looked at these events, that at least, if you don't remember a lot of the details, you will have in your hearts the basic ideas of scripture. And when you're in different situations in life, you will recall that maybe it won't be clear to you, but something will just not hit you right. You'll know, wait a minute, there's something wrong about what we're doing here. Let's go back and, and refresh and understand. And to be able to go back to a frame of reference and take a contemporary problem and digest it and analyze it in terms of scriptural categories. It's, it takes work to do that. It, the deceit and deception happen because oftentimes we're just simply lazy. We're not alert. Remember how many times in the New Testament it says, be alert, be sober, be vigilant? The idea is if we're not, we're going to be had. We're going to be tempted. We're going to be deceived. So that's the whole point here of learning wisdom, how to live in the world system. All right, Romans 1. The context again, an analysis of Gentile pagan culture. And if you'll look, there, there's a, I want to look, you to examine the text here. One of the things we want to learn, if you haven't already in some of your other classes, is to be able to observe different parts of the text. And one of the things that we want to look here is, watch the structure. Here's starting in chapter 1, uh, verse, well, actually 16 is where he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, but in verse 18 is where I want to start. From verse 18 to verse 32. We want to diagram that for a moment, um, or, or section, section it off. 
In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is evident when them, for God has made it, made it evident to them, and so forth. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, so they are without excuse. Now, watch the verbs. Watch the flags that tell you where the sections of this text are. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him, they didn't give him thanks, professing themselves to wise, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And then verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for lies, so forth, so forth. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over for something, something, something. And then you read down through verse 27 and verse 28, and that's just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now, how then would you divide the text? Let's, let's give Paul credit that he's repeating these things because he wants us to see some sort of structure here. Well, the easiest way of unraveling this quickly is to look down at the last, give them over. And that particular verb in verse 28, you notice, is located further in the sentence. And the verse starts out, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. So the complete thought includes the giving over plus the antecedent action. Something happened as a result God gave them over. Well, if that's the pattern, let's look back up at verse 26. The other give them over. What is the antecedent action that precedes the verb to give over? Well, it says for this reason. Well, what reason? Well, you go back to verse 25. What's in verse 25? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and for this reason God gave them over. So now we have a structure and we want to follow that structure. So we're going to actually look at it from the bottom side. In chapter 1, verse 28, starts that giving over there because you've got the antecedent condition the antecedent condition plus that verb and then everything else follows describing what it is that God gave them over to so there's a section of text there's a block of text from verse 28 to verse 32 now come back up to the second give them over and verse 25 gives you the antecedent activity that led to God giving them over so from verse 25 through verse 27, you have a similar type structure. Okay, let's go back up to the first one. The first one is a little more difficult because it's hard if you look at verse 24 and you see that verb, give them over, what is the antecedent condition? And you can say, well, it's, it's all of verse 20, 21, 22, 23. And that may be, but... I prefer to, on the basis of analogy with verse 25, take verse 23 as the antecedent condition that he has specifically in mind. I think verse 20, 21, 22 are general. That's the general apostasy. And then in begin verse 23, you have the specific parts of that. So we have these three blocks of text. Now let's compare those to John's categories of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and see if we can't see some similarities. If you look at the antecedent action to the first give over in verse 23, how would you describe 
that, if you had to sort it out among John's three categories, I mean, it may not fit. We're just testing here. In verse 23, what is involved? It's an image. What is an image done? It's an image that is seen. So let's, let's make a hypothesis here. Let's just say that verse 23 is talking about something about the lust of the eyes, something about man's imagination, something about how he views things. Then if we do that and we come down to verse 25 and that we describe that, what would that line up with? They worship and they serve the creature. It takes effort. It's the work of the flesh. And so if we make a tentative analogy with the lust of the flesh, then in the third one, it's quite clear there that that lines up very well with the pride of life because you can't see it so well in the English, but let me just show you something that happens in the Greek. In verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, now that's a, a, a liberal translation, and it, I mean it's not illegitimate, but literally what is said there is that they did not approve to have God in their epinosis or their most basic knowledge. They did not approve to have him in their knowledge. Now they had him in their knowledge because it's quite clear in verse 32 that they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So it's no question that all men know God. There's no such thing as an atheist. They have people, they say they are atheists. But this verse says they are not atheists. They know the ordinances of God. Unless they've had a frontal lobotomy, the conscience still works. But what is the issue in verse 28 is they don't like that. They are aware of God, but they resist him actively. They don't approve of having God in their knowledge. Now, if that's the case, then we have here the issue of authority. which is related to the pride. Here we have the issue of service and here we have the issue of the imagination. Now, tentatively accepting that for a moment, let's come back and look at what God gives them over to then. Now, in the notes, on page 19, I deal with that first one, dealing with verses 23 uh, and 24. And I say that it's the corruption of the human imagination, the lust of the eyes. And if you look at the first paragraph in the notes, there's an interesting point that I, I try to make about verse 23. That's where it says, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed things and crawling creatures. Now, a little point about observing lists in the Bible. And here's a tip about studying the New Testament. Many times in the New Testament, the writer of that text has an Old Testament passage in mind that he doesn't tell you he has in his mind. He will unconsciously use vocabulary that he has learned out of the Old Testament text. Why? Well, what do you suppose was their Bible? Their Bible was the Old Testament. These guys are Jews. These guys knew their Old Testament very, very well. They had meditated upon it. Can you imagine what it must have been like to become a Christian 
in a Jewish land. I mean, it, it necessitated you picking up your Bible and rereading the whole thing in the light of Jesus Christ. So it required a lot of thought about different passages. Wait a minute. The Messiah? Well, let's check this out here. So these guys went back and meticulously read the Old Testament. It turns out that if you look at these four things in verse 23, it's an example of Paul apparently having an Old Testament text in mind that he doesn't tell us he has in mind. Because you look at those four things, they, they, they recapitulate exactly the text of Genesis 7.23. Those are exactly the four things that God destroyed in the flood. Now, that can't be an accident, because there's, there's lots of, I mean, different Hebrew or different Greek words for animals and everything else. Why did he pick out these four? So, it, this tells you that he had something in mind. Now, let's test our powers of observation. Look carefully again at verse 23 and ask yourself, in this exchange that's going on, what other thing is being exchanged? Let's hammer this out a minute here. Go to a, see if I find a clean one here. Let's do some observing. What's, con what's contrasted? Let's start listing some contrasts in verse 20, 23 here. They exchanged the glory. What corresponds to glory in the other thing that's being replacing it? The image. And some of you in your Bibles will have the likeness of an image, because there's actually two words there. So we have God's glory, and we have an image. Both involve sight. Glory is like light, you know. Glory. Okay, now, what other things can you develop? Looking at the first part of this with what is exchanged. The glory corresponds to the image. What? Ah. Do you notice the adjectives? Incorruptible God for corruptible, and then it lists four things that are corruptible. Man, uh, birds, four-footed animals, and creature thing. Now, if he said those four things are corruptible, and we know now, Paul, that you, I bet you you had Genesis 7 in mind, which means he had the flood in mind, what do you think was going through his mind when he penned those words? The corruptible. The corruptible men, the corruptible birds, the corruptible things. What do you think that the thought is there? The corruptible. And then to place that over against the incorruptible God. <clears throat> what attribute of God is he getting at? Holiness, justice, righteousness, versus what happens to fallen human creation. So, we have the incorruptible exchanging for a corruptible. Not a very good exchange, really. Notice what things he does not say. Elsewhere in the Bible it says paganism uh, worships the stars, astrology and so on. But why do you suppose he doesn't mention stars? Why is it that this image is um, all-inclusive? When you think of the things and the stars, the constellations, the constellations are pictures of men, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So the worship of the stars is also included in this imagery. Now notice something else. 
There's four things to the image, but the word image is singular or plural? It's singular. So it's an image that has these, all these things in it. Now if you go to the notes in, on page 19. This is where last year we kept giving you this thing over and over and over again. You don't even want to look at it again, I'm sure. We had, saw this so many times. What we're dealing with tonight, folks, is where this came from. I talked about paganism and its, its, its hostility to scripture, both ancient paganism and modern paganism. Tonight, we're studying the rise of what is called paganism. It arose after the flood. What happened before the flood, we don't know in that era. But after the flood, this became the doctrine or the key idea that always opposes God. So we want to zero in on what we mean by continuity of being. Take it out of the theoretical here and try to make it clear so we see this is not just a label, continuity of being. It really is saying something extremely important about the way you view the world, yourself, God, and every other thing. What the continuity of being is, is if the creature... Let's just draw a picture of a person. If the person decides that, and this would be you, me, if we decide that our heart, our mind, is the center of our viewpoint, that we are the uh, central point of reference, and we look out and we see God, we look out we see man, we see animals, we see rocks, we see events, we see all these different things. But viewed from our perspective, if we take our perspective as ultimate, we classify all these, don't we? We have nouns for them. All these are classified with respect to our mind. This whole idea that we can classify all these things neatly is actually a perversion. Let me take this slowly. In the garden, what did God tell Adam to do to the animals? He told them to name them. And he was obviously to look at them, think, and label them. That was part of his dominion work. It's still part of our work to label and categorize things. The problem comes that when we decide that our categories are final without reference to God, and we build this classification system of nouns in our language as though we are the ones who are doing the final ultimate classification, there's the continuity of being operating. Very subtle how this happens. If you look at what's happening here, it's this person, us, me, you, we look at and we put God in our little classification box. We have the arrogance, the phenomenal arrogance to say that we can make the final determination about who and what God is, who and what man is, who and what animals are like, etc., etc., etc. In other words, our nouns, our names are the final, the final truth of what's out there. That we can name all things truly without any help from outside. What happens when we do this 
is that God now, in our brain, God is stuck in a box that we have built. Man is stuck in a box. Whatever we don't know, we say, well, there's some empty spots in my box, but the box is okay. We've got it pretty well knocked. This is actually an apostate idea of what man was supposed to do. The proper issue was, Adam was to go out to look at the animals, and what does it say about the animals? There's a little verse in the Hebrew text there. He didn't just go out and autonomously name them. He named them as what happened, as who brought them to him. God brought them to him. And the idea there is that he is to respond to what God is doing in his life and name them, but he's naming them under the authority of the one who is sovereign in bringing him the data and information. It's a recognition that he, God, is sovereign. And that whatever he names this little thing that's crawling around, he knows if God brings this little serpent to him, or this snake, or this mole, or this cat, or this dog, he knows when he sees that, that that's a creature that God made. The form of that dog, the form of that cat, the form of these things that I see, were originally ideas in his mind. And I can give them names, yes, but I'm always under the authority of the fact that who gave them the first name? Where did the form of the cat come from? Is it just a serendipitous arrangement of DNA that happened because somebody shook the bottle of dice? Or is the form of the cat or the form of a lamb actually coming out of the mind of God himself? And that when he designed the protoplasm and the DNA to have the form of a lamb, that what he was doing to the DNA and the structure of the molecules in the body of this lamb was building a structure that was to reveal something. Such that when his son dies on the cross, it can be said of him that like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. The lamb, in other words, has an animal behavior in it deliberately put there in order to teach us about God and his ways so that these forms of creatures that we see are not random. They emanate from God himself. The other thing to remember about this classification scheme, when we look at it this way, the best way I could describe it is the godly way is that we, we look at these things, but we always remember that there's a massive difference right here. Remember last year we dealt with the fact that God is incomprehensible? That God cannot fully be known. He said, the secret things belong unto me. Those things that which reveal belong unto us. Moses was saying that in Deuteronomy 29. The idea there is that God is incomprehensible in that we can never be omniscient. Our knowledge is derivative, never original. Or said this way, let me try to summarize this up another way. A mathematician gave me this idea, he taught many years at Columbia University. Very simple idea. He said, he was, he, he, I said, he was a pagan man and unbeliever, and he said, you know, he said, after many, many decades of teaching mathematics, I can't tell whether mathematics is a search 
for diamonds or whether we're manufacturing artificial stones. Let's just think about that statement. Is mathematics a search for diamonds or is it the manufacture of artificial stones? What did he mean by a search for diamonds or manufacturing an artificial stone? Let's think about that statement. The guy had something. What is he saying? Anybody got an idea? Yes, George. Exactly. The diamond is already there whether you discover it or not. And God is the original maker of the diamond. The structure and the form of the diamond is independently of man and independently of your naming it. It's there. God put it there. But on the other hand, under this idea of paganism, what finally happens, and it has happened again and again in history, when you do not make this distinction and you include God with all these other categories and you view man as the ultimate arbiter, the problem is man is corruptible and if all these categories depend on this, they can't be any stronger than this. And that means if this changes, what happens to the categories? They change. So this goes on again and again. It happens in literature, it happens in science, it happens in mathematics, and as you see the quote in page 19, it has happened down through the centuries politically. Politically. Look at the quote from Dr. Rushdoony on page 19. Apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being has been that being is one and continuous. See, it's this idea that we have just this one being that we're looking at God or the gods, man and the universe are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist so that a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consists of one undivided and continuous being. What did we say last year? What's the essence of the biblical worldview? One level or two levels? Two levels. Create a creature. What's the essence of paganism? One level. Now, you say, well, that still sounds too theory. Well, look at his next sentence. Here's what follows, folks. Ideas have consequences. And if you have only one level of existence, next sentence of the Rushdoony quote, the creation of any new aspect of being is thus not a creation out of nothing. It's a creation out of being. It's a transformation. You never have any creation. On pagan basis, you don't have a creation. That's what's so foolish when people talk about, ooh, I believe in the Big Bang theory, and the Big Bang was, was creation. No, it wasn't. It was a transformation from a tightly compacted universe to an expanded universe. It's a transformation, not a creation. Wrong. That's not true, that thing, that idea that you hear about the Big Bang being analogous to creation. It isn't. And it's been pointed out again and again. Going back to the diamonds. Let's think about this so we get this fixed in our minds. Going back to the diamonds. If math and these things are synthetic stones, then is truth discovered or is truth invented? Truth is there prior to man and is discovered by man. 
On the pagan basis, man originates the truth. On the biblical basis, man discovers the truth. A world of difference. Remember, last year, I had Cindy Baxter come up here and tell him about, in English, literature, what's going on. And this postmodernism that goes on is the idea that literature pours out of the corrupt mind of man and that is really not objectively true. And you say, that's still theoretical. Let me take it closer to home. One area we're going to get close to in this, in this study in the fall and the in spring. Law. Aha. When we read the law, are we reading literature? Yes, we are. And if you're going to mess up in the interpretation of literature, you're going to mess up in the interpretation of law. Because law is written. And that's the problem with our courts today. Law is plastic. It's rubber. It can be stretched any way the judge wants to stretch it. Why? Because the law is not something that is there that man discovers. It is something that man makes. When we get into the Mosaic Law, what are the three divisions of government? Executive, judicial, and legislative. What one is missing in the Old Testament? Did they have courts? Yes. They had a judiciary in the Old Testament. Did they have the executive branch? They have a king? They have elders? Yes. Where were their legislators? Uh-oh. That's a neat question. No legislature in the Old Testament. Why? Who made the law? God made the law. And what were the judges in the courts to do? Make more law? Or interpret it into other law? Transform it? Or were they to discover what God had put in that law text? See? World of difference going on here. And we could belabor the point, but I want to make the point very strongly today that even if you don't buy into this or you, you still may be a little bit confused at it, let me assure you that this is a profound thing that's going on here. And it controls everything we see bad about our society. It's rooted in this. This difference between is God the incomprehensible, omniscient one who has created everything with meaning and a purpose that we discover... Or is man the arrogant, finite creature who's trying to project his universals out of his own finite resources and name everything all by himself without reference whatsoever to God, the design, or anything else? You can't have it both ways. It's one way or it's the other way. Now, the other thing that we observed about verse 23 was not only the image, but we said, um, this is Troy pointed out, incorruptible versus corruptible. The other thing, and we reviewed this, remember, last time, last year, we had that diagram, we showed again and again. On the pagan basis, the fall is removed. Evil becomes normal. That's why, you see, it says they exchange the glory of the incorruptible for a corruptible thing. If everything is corruptible, then evil is normal. Now, what is the consequences practically for that? Follow on page 19. Again, I, I cite Rush Tooney. Look at that quote down the bottom. Both gods and men developed or evolved out of the original chaos of being. Chaos or darkness generates life. 
It is both the source of life and the enemy of life. Chaos and life are thus a necessary tension. And then I add, thus paganism always features a return to chaos, a Mardi Gras-like orgies to rejuvenate life. Then, once again, the eternal cycle returns to death. Now, let's just examine that for a moment. Why that, why that happens. And it explains the drug problem. This business of the drug problem and alcohol problem, the more you work with it and the more you see people struggling with this thing, this is not something to be removed by some sort of little program or some uh, one, two, three therapy problem. There's some serious things going on here, deep down in the human heart. And people get caught in this, trapped in this thing. But it, it roots back to the fact that we are made in God's image. And when we, we refuse to have him as our authority, we pay all kinds of prices in every area. Now, one of the things that paganism has always done, it has this cycle. It looks like this. You always go from order to chaos and then back to order again. The picture is always that man evolved, so you have to have chaos in order to get started. Well, what does drugs or an orgy or going to the Mardi Gras do? It's, it's time to let off steam, time to blow off, you know, this kind of stuff. And then you feel rejuvenated and go on. It's part and parcel of the same worldview. Romans used to do this. The Greeks used to do this. The Canaanites used to do this. Everybody used to do it, except the Jews. You know what they did to rejuvenate themselves? Let's think about it. What was the requirement in their society to rejuvenate? Sabbath day. They had a rest. They had a way of rejuvenating themselves, but very carefully separated from the orgy type of the Canaanite neighbors that were going at it. You see, taking drugs or doing these things is a theological statement. It's not just a social problem. It's not just something that just happened because my dad did or my mother did it. It's saying something, and tragedy is we're not coming to grips with the spiritual message that's going on here because we don't take seriously the Bible when it says that person, no matter how down in life they are, finally, we're not dealing with an animal, we're dealing with a person made in God's image who has some sort of relationship with God. Every person has some sort of relationship with God. What we have to find out is what relationship do they have with God and how do they get in this mess? Well, Paul tells us one of the things that corrupted civilization, verse 23, after this corruption of the imagination, what did God do in response in verse 24? He gave them over to the lust. And the word lust here is an active lust. You're going to see the word lust in verse 26, and it's a passive lust. Two different words in the original language. The first lust in verse 24 is something you choose to do. The lust in verse 26 is you can't help it. It's a passive thing. So in verse 24, God gave them over to their hearts to do for uncleanness that their bodies might be dishonored among them. In other words, it sounds very mean of God here. But God said, if you take this position and you're going to corrupt your imagination and you're not going to grant me the authority as the Creator and you're going to go to try and go out into this world system and do it yourself, name it yourself, you are the final authority, and that's your imaginative picture of the real world. And you want to build your kingdom, be my guest. And he let them do it. And it's that release in verse 24 that historically triggered the rise of paganism in civilization. We don't know how it happens, but entire nations can go this way. 
Tribes can go this way. Families can go this way. Where there's resistance to God and he says, that's it, forget it. Boom. And he let them go. He let the nations drift into paganism. Now the second one, in verse 25, not only did the vain imagination happen, and the notes are on page 20, not only did the vain imagination happen, but we have devotion. They exchanged the truth of God. See the word exchange there again, by the way? You'll notice the exchange in verse 23. You'll notice the exchange in verse 25. In verse 26, you'll notice the exchange again. Not an accident. A pattern to this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature. So now, not only do they see all things as ultimately the same, now we devote ourselves to it. They worshipped and they served. Now Paul wrote those words, worshipped and served. Hold the place and let's see how he used those exact verbs in another context in chapter 12. Same epistle. It's one you've read a thousand times. But look where it's used again. How, how interesting. The same verb, to worship and to serve, is occurs in Romans chapter 12 in that famous passage we all know. I urge you, brethren, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then what does he talk about immediately in the verse 2? And be not conformed to the world. See the opposition going on? between service in the Lord and what we see here in this, in this gave them over thing. Okay, verse 25, Romans 1. The second one is they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature. Then in verse 26 and 27, this is where the giving over to homosexuality arises. And you'll notice that the homosexuality is not the original activity that leads to it. Now, there's something right there, and we, we're running out of time tonight, and we're not going to finish all the notes tonight, but I, I want to make a point that here, here we're up against it again. And I, I know you don't have to go too far in the Scripture before you realize that practically every page puts you in opposition to the world. What is the current propaganda that you read over and over and over again about homosexuality? Now, we're gonna, I'm not picking just on homosexuality, but for a while, just because of this text we are. What is the idea that, that even if you withhold behavior, what still can't you change in the real, quote, homosexual? His orientation, his basic pattern. You can't change that because that's the way he is. We all know that, supposedly. And this is giving the rise to legislative initiatives in state after state after state because once you grant that the person has a, quote, natural orientation, how can you make a law against it? Because if it's a natural orientation, the guy can't be guilty of it. You don't make laws against somebody that has blonde hair. They can't help that. Well, everybody going to dye their hair black or what? So, you don't make laws against that because people can't help that. And that's the argument you're seeing right smack dab in front of our face today. Now, what does this passage tell us? If this is serious, what does it say? It says before you get to the homosexual problem in verse 26, what preceded the problem in verse 25? It says there was a pattern of selfishness. I want to do it my way and I'm going to do it my way 
And God says, fine, you do it your way. You ignore the creator-creature distinction, and I'll make it so you ignore the gender distinction. So, homosexuality in this regard is no different than any other sin. You may have a propensity to anger. You could argue the same way. Hey, it's in my genes. I can't help it. I mean, dang So, why make, why no? Anger is politically correct now. So, you get in an argument about somebody in the traffic jam on 695 or something. Can't help it. It's in my genes. I mean, can you imagine what society would do if every time we got into something, oh, it's in my genes. Oh, I can't help it. It's all natural. Baloney. And that's where the Bible, as Christians, we're going to get caught here. Because sure as shooting, there's going to be laws made and that someday somebody's going to make a big issue out of the fact that some church preacher got up and he preached on Romans 1 and it's illegal now. Because that's violating someone's civil rights to talk that way in a public forum. Incorrect. Fines, punishment, jail. Think it's far-fetched? I don't. Because we've allowed an idea to just take hold in the society. We've let the world system dictate that and now it's coming home to roost because now that idea is being used to generate certain legislative forms and watch what happens next. So, we can't get away from this. Here's where things go. And then finally, the third thing, we've had the lust of the eyes, God let them go. The lust of the flesh, God let them go. And then if we think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, I'm hetero. All right. Try on for size, verse 28, 29, and 30. I guarantee you there's not one of us in this room that isn't caught in there somewhere. What is that? That's just saying that it's rebellion. Notice what precedes the giving over in verse 28. They didn't seem, they didn't want to submit to the authority of what they knew their conscience was telling them. Very simple. And then, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. And the, the irony in the Greek here is, the word depraved is the opposite of the word that's suppressed in my translation. But uh, my translation says, as they did see fit. They did not see fit. I don't know what your translation has in there, but mine has, it did not see fit. That's the word, the Greek word, dokamazo, which is to test. comes out of that stem. And the depraved mind is the untested mind. There's irony here. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. So God gave them over a mind that isn't fit for anything. And, it's, and it's, there's, there's poetic irony in all these three things. So and you have the general list of them. Look at the list. Look at that list. Let's just look at it for a moment. Does this describe pagan society? Does this describe the result of corporate sin, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed? And look at some of the sins here. Because you often hear, ooh, ooh sin, and, and we have these preconceptions of what sin is. Let's, let's enlarge our horizons about what some of these sins are. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. There's a good one. Deceptive practices. Deceptive speech. Gossips. Slanderers. This goes on all the time. Talk shows. Every newspaper you read. In the office. Oh, I'm a good person. I just chew people up with my mouth, that's all. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. There's a good one. In other words, we make new forms of evil. Eh? Internet. New tool. Let's see what we can do with this one. Disobedient to parents. Look at that one. Isn't that interesting? 
basic final authority of society. So let's tear that one up. Let's give the courts the right to have a social worker come on in and tear up the authority of the parent. Let's grease the skids in the school system so the kid goes into the teacher and learn all kinds of stuff or get into a counseling situation the parents never told about. Let's do that. Without understanding, untrustworthy. And the word there is uh, untrustworthy is the word that means to break a business contract. How many times do you see that going on? Breaking a contract. See, it's very contemporary. And then it finally law, laws are those that practice such things. This is the final twist in verse 32. And we'll have to stop here tonight. The final twist in verse 32 is they not only do it, they approve those. And the word approve is the word back in verse 28. They don't approve God in their minds, but they approve this. So not only is it done and practiced, but we are going to redefine deviancy. What do you see going on now? Now we have alternate lifestyles. What a nice neutral term. Now can you imagine somebody in a talk show or an interview saying, oh well, I fornicated five times last week. Now how does that come across? Or does it more sound better that I have an alternate lifestyle? See, we defined, redefined deviancy. And we do it with our vocabulary. It's easy to do. You just make up new words, that's all. Very simple. But it's being done. And the next step after society redefines a vocabulary is the laws begin to change, which they're now doing. Because the laws are written in language. If you've changed the language, what do you change? The laws that are written in the language. Night follows day. So that's the transformation, and that's the rise of paganism. And on page 20 of your notes, the thing we did not cover tonight, which we'll cover next time, is the role after the flood of civil government in all this, the power of the state. It's a, it's a political issue. I want to keep away from the election, so that's why it's great after the election. But it's, and it's not a knocking of one party or the other. It's just coming up with a biblical... This is one of the first areas we're going to get into biblical uh, view of, of politics and political truth. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you do give us light in the world. And when we look at our own sin and we see ourselves as sinners, that in our hearts, while we can put on the facade for those around us, we know that in our hearts there lurks this sin thing. And we pray as Christians that the new life in Christ will come to dominate and overwhelm that sin nature and that flesh. For this is our desire in our innermost part. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.